If you'd only put feet on the fast tech lo- fast tech's logo, that would have been your that would have been your ticket to financial oh, freedom. Oh God, you're the worst. <laughs> I hate you so much. You know, it's so obvious now that Casey's error was uh, making fast techs have too many features. If it had just simply sent the word yo to everybody, he'd be a millionaire now. Little did I know. You thought too big. You're like, oh, I gotta have a way to configure different messages and send them all on buttons. No, just send the word yo. Push notification. Done and done. Seriously, how can the Valley take themselves seriously? When, I mean, what that was a product of the Valley, I assume, right? Yeah, I think I think Marco was the one who compared it to Million Dollar Homepage. Yep, Mi- Million Dollar Homepage still wins because of that venture capital money. Like he has to actually spend that to try to like grow the business or whatever. The Million Dollar Homepage guy just got the money and it's his free and clear. Like he does not have to invest it into a business. He's not expected to hire employees to get office space. Like the, the venture capital money this guy got comes with massive strings attached, and he will never be able to fulfill the the, the what these people want because he's stupid and his business is stupid. Uh, so the million dollar homepage guy still wins for the best business plan of any business in the entire universe. And I continue to try to think of uh, some equivalent. Many have tried. Yeah, God, that guy. He's the smartest person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if Casey had had to come up with the idea, he would have tried to do it with WebSockets, and then it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a web page. That's it. Your you, your financial investment risk is even when he did it, like in 1995, like his total financial investment in a static web page, oh like hosting God. it and paying for bandwidth, which must have been like, let's say a hundred dollars <laughs> against a million in income. Can we make this the intro? Oh, I was already planning on doing that. Yeah. <laughs> that guy, man. Even if the intro is like five minutes long before we actually get to the real show, that I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> no one knows what million dollar homepage is, though, do they? These days? Of course. No, they can look it up, for God's sakes. It is It is not hard to find. Is it still up? I, I hope. It, it was guaranteed to be up for a certain amount of time, right? Yep, it's still up. It's still fast. Uh, he's selling posters of it. He's a genius. <laughs> yeah, it didn't... Uh, it, I, I'm, it probably doesn't lose all of its data if the server crashed. You guys are so mean to me. My goodness. I have to admit, there's one aspect of it that I guess he had to do something. Assuming he didn't program this, he would have to put in the pixels that they paid for in their places, right? I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure he did it manually, because otherwise it's kind of a layout issue. It's a box packing problem, right? Right. So there is some small component of labor, but I'm sure the uh, the, the bed of money he was laying on made that labor more bearable. <laughs> wow. This is so old. And he had to make the image map and the links to it, I guess. So he had to he had to write HTML and click buttons in an image editor. Oh, yeah, because this was long before anything more useful than that. Well, he's got a mouse over on it now, too. This is advanced technology. He really put a lot of <laughs> a lot of time and effort into this. <laughs> so I just expanded the... I, I did a inspect element on Safari, and I expanded the map element, and I think I just crashed Safari. <laughs> the best part, he's, he's got, like, fake tooltips for, I guess, the days before browsers didn't do automatic tooltips, and you see the fake one and the real one. Like, the fake one follows the cursor, but the real one lags behind it. And it's just, yeah. How many hits a day do you think this gets? I mean, the only bad thing is that, he, I guess, he thought kind of small, because a million dollars doesn't really last that long. Like, I'm sure he's already gone through this money or whatever, but it's a hell of a start for, like, starting your adult life at 20-whatever years old he was. Oh, yeah. And so, like, and unfortunately, he's now in the same situation as the rest of the world. Is like, I need another idea that's like that. If he had done ten million dollar homepage, he would have been a lot more comfortable. Wait, so you see this layout, and you see how it's like all loud because he, you know, didn't control who bought. You know, so it's like visually very loud, right? Yep. Looks looks like the web in the nineties. Yeah, his new web, his new venture, com dot com. 
C-O-M or C-A-L-M? C-A-L-M. He probably spent a million dollars on that domain. Probably. <laughs> as, as per his Twitter account, he is the founder and CEO of Calm. I'll bet he is. It's not loading as quickly as the million dollar homepage. No, page. it isn't. Maybe, did we just like take it down with three simultaneous requests? Oh, it's got a little water background and... No, I'm seeing a cloud background. I got water. Prepare for your two-minute session. Choose your preferred nature of something, some BS relaxation thing. Your other day idea was better. We're both BS. Yeah, but wow. one makes people send him money. The site was guaranteed to be online at least through August 26, 2010. However, the aim is to keep the site online forever or as long as humanly possible. I love how we still got the sold out banner. Yeah, right. Just in case you want, still wanted to buy things. Sold out. And the minimum purchase was 10 by 10 or $100. Yeah. Because it was a dollar pixel. So he, that's, that was his only thing is that he thought a little bit small because anyone who bought this, like, I guess he probably did get some private individuals, but mostly it's going to be businesses and businesses are willing to spend way more than a hundred dollars on BS boondoggles like this. Yeah. But back then were they? Oh yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you could have got thousands, but you could have got, you know, 300 or 500 easy because a hundred, a hundred is under the petty cash threshold, even of most businesses in the nineties, you know, type of site. Pixel advertising is on Wikipedia. <laughs> were there many others? As opposed to non-pixel advertising. Oh, so you click on pixel advertising and it's and you end up back on the million dollar homepage. Redirected <laughs> from pixel advertising. Ay, ay, ay. Marco, buy me an M3. All right, let me do uh, some extraordinarily quick follow-up. The uh, showbot is back. And if I was more prepared, which I'm not because the show is accidental, um, I've had some people contributing to it. And I know Jeremy Banks put a lot of work into it. Uh, Kyle, Cronin, or, uh, Kyle Cronin did and um, Brad Choate, who runs the showbot that actually works. Um, he has also contributed. And I'm probably forgetting some people here and there. And for that, I'm deeply sorry. And I really mean that because I didn't pull up the uh, I didn't pull up GitHub before we started. But yes, the, ch- the showbot is back. We've, and by we, I mean everyone but me, has made some pretty good improvements to it. Um, we'll see how long it lasts. We are currently about two minutes into recording and it hasn't quite died yet. Um, but it's been a really, all kidding aside, it's been a, a really, really cool thing to see people issuing pull requests. Um, the only bad thing about putting something that's semi-popular on the internet and in open sourcing it is that unbeknownst to me, when people actually pay attention, which I'm not used to, you actually have some sort of implied time commitment to like look at poll requests and figure things out. <laughs> so, oh, that, that, that's a good topic for a show. Do you have an implied time commitment to do that? You feel, Obviously, you think you do, but do you actually? That's not, not for today's topic, but save it. I was yeah, going to say, we could use the standard, uh, standard consulting term and we could put that in the parking lot for now. What? Wait, hold on. That's a real thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, I spent all day in meetings, and I'm, um, I'm about to cry. What is wrong with you people? I, I'm, I'm, I regret to to say that I do know about the parking lot. Only, only Marco doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! What? Oh, this you're, you've already broken my brain. We're like three minutes into the show. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. I, I I can't say anything else. Wait, Google I/O didn't do it. No, that uh, you just broke my brain more than Google I/O did. That's really saying something. You're welcome. You know, oh you God. should have been doing Casey all this time. And if you haven't figured it out now, I will give you the hint to help you along that path, even though you're being dragged down it by other people. As, as <laughs> soon as you had the, the chat room filled with people who were attacking your bot and everything and how it's going to help improve it and help you improve your code and be educational and entertaining for everyone involved, 
you should have immediately tried to enlist a faction of people who are uh, for on your side because it's very easy to get programmers on your side when presented with a problem like hey a bunch of other people are attacking this program help me make it stronger at least half of the people who are attacking probably would have said oh i'd like to be on the defense side in this game you know what i mean in, in gaming parlance do you want to be attackers or defenders you haven't done that. It's been happening to you. People have been saying, here, let me help you out with your bot. But I think you would have been uh, successful even on the very first show saying, I know people are going to attack this. And if you want to be on the defense side, join me. And then you could get sort of a, <laughs> a power dynamic going. And I bet it would be a, a um, much more fair fight. Well, and that's true, but we've had, like I said, some volunteers come out of the woodwork and make some really excellent changes. Um, a couple of them have started work looking at putting like memcached in front of it or some, some equivalent thereof. I haven't had the time to look into the specifics of the more invasive, but I mean that in a good way, um, edits that have been made to the show about, oh, there are, um, there are automated tests now, which I also haven't looked into yet. But, uh, one of, one of my cronies, and again, I mean that in a good way, uh, has added automated testing. And, uh, I, at some point I plan on turning that on so that as things get checked into master, um, and, and pushed into master and so on, uh, automated tests will run. Um, we did have somebody contribute some regex and specifically call you out and say in a, in a happy way saying, oh, I don't know if this is up to John quality, but nevertheless, I did something. I think it was around the suggest um, checking, checking for this, the, the exclamation point S. By the way, do you guys say bang S or would you say exclamation point? Wait, why does it have to be a regex? It's just two characters that always are the same. Well, but it could be it could be exclamation point S or it could be exclamation point suggest. Yeah, but they both begin with exclamation point s. Well, that's the way I looked at it. But apparently, if you f if you find yourself in the presence of anyone who's ever touched Pearl in their lives, then their hammer is made of regex and everything looks like a nail. You want to be permissive in what kind of input you take in because humans are writing it. So you have to allow for variable amounts of spacing. And inevitably, you have to extract the part that is not the command. And that is the title. And you're going to want to do things with a title, like normalize it for deduplication purposes and, and trim out multiple space runs for the official version that you display and all that good stuff. And that's exactly what regular expressions are for. If you're a C programmer and you're stepping through the string a character at a time, uh, I feel bad for you, son, as they say. <laughs> now i have two questions with with all these improvements to the showbot question number one is it rate limited uh yes uh somebody added some modicum of rate limiting i've been um i haven't been paying super close attention which comes back to what john said we should put in the <laughs> parking lot or what i said we should put the parking lot but anyways um there is a modicum of rate limiting um and there's still no persistence so when this inevitably goes that was question number two <laughs> when this inevitably goes <laughs> down uh we're gonna lose all our titles so i hope the actual showbot is still around uh brad Schultz showbot but anyway uh, but it's it's an, it's so I've I've turned a new leaf. A friend of the show, Chris Harris, from uh, originally from the other media, now he's with uh, Glide Publishing. Um, he wrote me a very nice email saying, in so many words, yes, it's annoying, but it makes for good programming. So, you know, deal with it. So I'm going to try to put on my happy face when the showbot inevitably goes down in like ten minutes. I'm going to probably end up really ticked off again. But standing here now, I'm going to put on my happy face. So. See, I, I bet the guy who wrote you in with like the we were IMing about a particular known bug that could take out the showbot very quickly. The person who wrote into you about that probably now feels bad about exploiting it and won't. See, so you've sort of got that person on your side because it's no fun anymore. To like because if you know about the bug and he told you about the bug and he knows it's not fixed, it's not as fun to exploit it to bring the thing down. All right, security by guilt. 
Yeah. So, someone, <laughs> someone on the, uh, the the chat room said, well, attacking is always more than fun, fun than defending. That's like level one. Level two is that defending is more fun than, than attacking because the attackings all, attackers all think they're hot. But really, if you're a defender that shows you're better than all the attackers, you know, it's the white hat, black hat thing. It, uh, I, I feel like white hat uh, is the next level up from black hat because everyone wants to be black hat. Oh, I'm going to crack into things. But to be a white hat, you you are saying that you are better than any potential black hat, which is. A even more boastful statement. Oh, and we died. Gone. That was it. Uh, let me see if I... It doesn't mean that other people didn't also know that, <laughs> known bug, and weren't on your side. Let's see. Where did I... I see a stack trace, unspecified... Er- oh, apparently there was just some sort of error in the WebSocket. All right, you guys stall while I put up a gist so people who actually know what the crap they're doing can, uh, can diagnose this. Our first sponsor this week... Is a well new sponsor. Done. Yeah, right? I'm getting good at this sometimes, maybe, occasionally. Uh, our new sponsor this week is Raise Labs. That's R-A-I-Z-L-A-B-S, Raise Labs. They are a full-service development firm with offices in Boston and San Francisco. They've been around for uh, about 10 years now, and they've been crafting great mobile products for a variety of companies, big and small. It's up from well-known brands like Macy's and Bloomingdale's and B&H Photo Video to local startups like Sunsprite, the creator of the first solar-powered personal sun exposure tracker. The company got its start by shipping one of the very first several hundred apps in the App Store called RunKeeper. It's actually been there since the beginning. Uh, it's a Boston-based GPS fitness tracking app. Anyway, Raise Labs wants to change the world with great software. They care about crafting quality products, and they are looking for others that share this mentality. See, the sponsorship's actually a job listing. Uh, They are actively hiring for experienced mobile developers, iOS and Android in both Boston and San Francisco to engineer beautiful apps and influence product direction for well-known Fortune 500 companies and exciting new startups. They're also looking for talented designers to help craft a memorable experience for users as well as product managers. You'll be working with enthusiastic and supportive peers in a trust-based work environment. I wonder if they have a parking lot. If if a place doesn't have a parking lot... (laughs) Can they still use that phrase? Uh, sure. Because they're they're in major metro areas. They might not even have a parking lot because those are you know they're in dense area. Anyway, we'll just assume they don't use that phrase because they seem like good people. Um, so you'll be working with enthusiastic and supportive peers in a trust based work environment. They also have unique vacation and referral programs. Their vacation policy is unlimited, unmetered. It can be summed up in four words: "In team, we trust." How much time you take off is up to you. Uh, they also have this referral program where anyone who refers a talented individual to Raise Labs will receive a four-day all-expenses-paid vacation for two. And you can learn about that at raiselabs.com slash trip. They also have hack days every two weeks. Uh, the only requirement is that you must demo or present whatever you've learned. And they're involved in the iOS community with sponsoring events such as AltConf and Drinks on Tap. So check out Raise Labs. They're looking for good people. If you want to work there, get in touch. Go to raiselabs, R-A-I-Z-L-A-B-S dot com slash A-T-P. Once again, that's raise with a Z, raiselabs.com slash A-T-P. Thanks a lot to Raise Labs for sponsoring the show, and check them out if you want a good job. All right, so Jeremy Banks in the chat is one of the people who has dedicated uh, not insignificant amount of time to improving the showbot, and apparently one of the many branches and pull requests that is out there that I haven't had a chance to look at fixes this problem, which is to say that I wasn't ca- uh, catching or handling errors in WebSockets. Now, of course, that error probably shouldn't have happened in the first place, but eventually that exception just bubbled up and brought everything to its knees. So that, I believe, is what happened. But it's event-driven. Right. 
and it's scalable. This is how it scales. Well, WebSockets are a little bit weird, but your point is not unreasonable. But anyway, we could we don't need to talk about the showbot anymore. It lasted what ten minutes? That's not bad. <laughs> not even. It's an improvement. <laughs> It's getting worse every week. It lasted 15 last week. Oh, yeah, you're right. I did my best trying to stall for time by guilting people into not bringing it down. But it only worked for so long. Do we have any actual other follow-up? I mean, we have like this, you know, four pages worth in the document, but are we actually going to read this or what? I put, I put one item at the very top. I mean, it could be a topic, too. It's just I figured we would talk about Google I.O., but then Casey said he didn't even watch it, so I'm not sure what we'll talk about today. But I had one Apple WWDC sort of related topic, so it's kind of follow-up. Well, you know, follow-up is the essence of experience design. The primary <laughs> actions are inflection points that transform the whole design. Their emphasis makes core functionality immediately apparent and provides waypoints for the user. That's not the worst one, though. The, wor- the one that uh, DHH tweeted yeah. was, I think that was, because I read that like six times and I'm like, there's, there's, there's not even, is there a verb in the sentence anywhere? It was just. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, I did at least look at a couple of recaps to see the general gist of what was said. And I watched... One of their like what 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 is this silly term they have for design material based design or something like that? A material metaphor is the unifying theory of a rationalized space and a system of motion. Our material is grounded in tactile reality, inspired by our study of paper and ink, yet open to imagination and magic. The thing that scared me when he he tweeted that because he says the tweet was something like uh, Apple has uh, you know some high high-minded knowledge or you know bs language essentially in their copy sometimes but this really takes the cake and i'm like that's from an apple website because i thought he was saying that yeah apple (laughs) apple says some crazy stuff sometimes but look at this this is the worst thing they've ever done and i was looking at i'm like what what web page could that possibly be from that that can't be from an apple site and i was relieved to learn that it was not from an apple site but it was from a google site yeah not uh not not great no but i will say the literally two or two and a half minute video that they have on their new design site where they don't really say much of anything i don't think but they show the the kind of idea behind the look and feel of what is this android l um but anyway is that actually looked good to me and a lot of it looked a lot like ios and some of it didn't but i thought it looked good i i thought the apple video their little interview for ios that would look better but it's not like we could talk do the whole show talking about how Google is worse at giving keynotes than Apple, but really it, does, it doesn't matter that much how good the keynote is or how, I guess, how good the copy and, and marketing on their site matters a little bit more because that's persistent. Uh, but in terms of, uh, like, why do this thing? Why do this material UI? Google has been trying for the past several years to address its perceived and, I think, actual shortcoming in user interface by saying it should look less like a bunch of programmers slap something together and more like there were designers involved. And it's been a slow, long process, and this is the next step in it to try to, you know, unify Google's user interface across all the things that have user interface to give a family resemblance or whatever. That's a Don't you think that's a good idea? I mean, you can argue whether it should be unified across everything from watches to televisions, but Apple kind of has a common design language across everything that it does even if they're not as as similar as this material ui is supposed to be yeah i mean i definitely think it's they're going in in a, in a good direction they're going in a direction they need to go in um, a lot of the things they talked about while they were full of this you know blowhard in the clouds language 
Um, and who knows what they were sniffing over there when they came up with some of this. But <laughs> the the design, the actual design below all this BS uh, looks pretty good to me. But it's easy, you know, it's... We can't really judge yet. It's it's way too early to judge because we don't really know how this will be in practice. And the three of us will probably never know because we'll probably never use it regularly to to even see it. But um, you know, it's it's easy to it's easy to give a good demo. Well, wait, is it easy? Is it easy to give a good demo? Fair point. Um, it, it, there's going to be some challenges with this, like every like every design language, like every especially every like trendy looking design language. One of the things I noticed immediately was it it seems extremely reliant on fairly undiscoverable gestures um and you can say that about a lot of ios stuff as well but it seems like this was especially so in that direction that that's a little bit scary to me from just from a usability perspective anything that revolves around like oh well you can you can just pinch this out and drag here and move this thing around well it has to be pretty clear to people you know what can move what can't what is draggable what can't if there's if there's something like a picture or a drag that can expose pretty good functionality how do you ever figure that out um that that's always tricky with gesture-based interfaces and and that's going to be a challenge here too that being said um i again i think it's too early to tell because anybody can well almost anybody can make a good demo uh it's even easier to make a good video um it's much harder to actually predict how this will be once it's integrated through the whole system and once apps start integrating it. And none, none of the three of us know enough about Android to even know what the main problems these days are. Well, not having used it is no reason for to not pick up things that you don't like about it. So I have <laughs> at, least, at least two things to complain about from the... And the first complaint is to actually complain about all recent uh, visual redesign things. Is that iOS does it, uh, you know, Google's doing it with this. Everybody who does some sort of UI refresh feels this need is it peer pressure or is it just like you know this is not new to computer interfaces i guess this has always been there they want some kind of theme or metaphor to anchor their design which is a common thing but in in uh in user interfaces on mobile devices and stuff like the the metaphor that google used was uh, don't just think of it as a bunch of pixels. Think think of the pixels not just having x and y coordinates but also z coordinates and down to the point where in the demo they're like in your UI, you'll essentially give Z a Z layering to all of your things, and then our user interface library will make them look like they have that Z layering by applying shadows and rendering them real time and all this stuff or whatever. But that metaphor, like that you need this metaphor, that it's like pieces of paper and they're stacked and they have a Z index or like Apple where it's like translucent things sliding past each other and it's a layered thing. Those metaphors are important in that they inform the user interface, but it seems like maybe i don't know who's worse about this apple or google like that they take that design and they go beyond just having this be a way that humans who look at the screen can understand what's supposed to happen and they they just get lost in it and think that everything in their user interface has to uh, inform and reinforce that metaphor for the sake of the metaphor not for like it it flips instead of the metaphor being this is how we're going to get people to understand how to use our device it becomes the metaphor is the goal, and every part of our user interface has to reinforce and build on that metaphor, right down to being clever expansions of that metaphor and doing stuff like that. And it's like they, they lose the forest for the trees. So every time I see one of these videos that explains what the underlying thing is and then spends the rest of the video showing how everything folds into that underlying thing, I'd rather have them show me how the metaphor makes the interface more understandable to people instead of showing me how every part of the user interface conforms to the metaphor. So that, that's one thing. And 
again, you can't tell until we use it, but you can, I can tell from the presentations that this is, this is how they're presenting their UI. Um, and the second thing, what is the second thing? I feel like, what's his name? Uh, the guy who forgot the third thing, but I can't remember the second thing. <laughs> nice. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. Go on. I'll, I'll get it in a second. So they, they only spent about the first 45 minutes or so talking about new stuff that was going into Android, right? Do I have that roughly right? And then like the rest of it was some of these new initiatives, like the, the Android Wear, Android TV, Android in your vehicles, whatever the Android car, Android drive, what are they calling it? Uh, auto Android, is that right? Uh, I don't and, Yeah. Android Auto, other way. Okay. It seemed like, you know, so the first 45 minutes, here's what's new in Android, basically. Good. You know, that's, if you're into Android, that's probably very relevant. And I think what, what got people to say it was so boring, because in the first part of it, everybody was, was quite interested in all that. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't watching it live, but I was watching the, the, the Twitter response. And yeah, the first part of it was, seemed pretty strong. And then they get into this, uh, you know, hour and a half more or two hours more of talking about various new hardware integration initiatives what's what's bad about that is that none of these things are actual products yet or very few of them are and it's all about like the promise of what you can maybe do with this in the future like when apple you know apple unveiled the the health book health kit thing uh home kit and uh they didn't even mention carplay <laughs> or it, if they did it was very quick uh in this keynote because you know i think it was and anyway, what well, didn't it launch last year when they didn't they initial initially announce carplay last year mm-hmm. anyway but they had a Ferrari. Right. <laughs> but but they didn't give it a whole lot of time in the keynote because there's not much really to say yet. It's, hey, we have this new thing. We're going to, you know, we're, we, we hope people make devices for it, basically. And we hope you make apps for it once these devices exist. Uh, good luck with that. And, you know, moving on. And that's what they did this year with HealthKit and HomeKit because there really was not much to say. Google devoted three quarters of their keynote to that. And so I think that's why it was so boring because, like, you know, it's a lot like a CES keynote at that point. You know, CES keynotes are like famously, you know, like when, especially like when Microsoft would give them or HP or whoever, they would always be famously full of vaporware. It would always be like this, this crazy stuff that kind of maybe sounds interesting during the demo and kind of sounds possibly uh, impossible or stretching the limits of, of what consumer products can be or can do realistically. And then, you know, six months later, they get canceled. And they were never released, or they, you know, they come out and they're really disappointing, and they flop badly in the market because they were nothing like what they were, what they were going to be demoed like in the keynote. And it's hard to look at Google's rest of their keynote and and not make a parallel there because it seems like almost everything they announced after the first forty five minutes was like, here's a bunch of new stuff that in the best case scenario might come out fairly soon and might be kind of cool, but we're depending on a lot of other people for that to happen. And in the meantime, here's some pretty terrible smartwatches to tide you over. <laughs> I think that's a little bit harsh because I mean, a, this is Google's part of Google's strategy is that they, they make a platform that other hardware maker, other people can build products on. Like that's their thing. I mean, you can say you don't like that thing as much as Apple's thing, but that is certainly their thing. So to expect Google to come out and have, products behind every single one of these things that their software platform provides uh, is uh, probably expect them to be too much like Apple. But the things that they, the things that they show, like the idea that we've got this platform, we, the platform works obviously in phones and tablets. Here's how the platform works on a television. Here's how it work might work on a watch. Uh, I didn't like the watches either, but it is showing that their platform works there. And the TV stuff, 
look pretty good to me. Certainly, they they have shown an ability to have a single platform that split that spans all those devices better than Apple has because Apple has its platform. It's got its desktop platform and its tablet and phone platform and its TV platform. And there's no unified story that in, includes all of them. Uh, I mean, it, and you could, you could say, well, it, we don't want it to be unified across the Mac and iOS devices, which is fine. But the TV thing already runs iOS, but it doesn't even run apps. Like they're not extending that platform out there. So I think that Google is out ahead of Apple in terms of having a unified platform across all of their products. It just so happens that they're not responsible for making all their products because their whole deal is they let other people build on them and so on and so forth. But the TV stuff that they showed, that looks a hell of a lot better than the Apple TV UI, don't, don't you guys think? Yeah, I didn't see very much of it, but the one or two images I saw looked very good, and the Apple TV is starting to look a little dated. But to go back just a step, what's so bad about these watches? I, I'm, I don't, oh, I mean... I'll tell you what's bad about the watches. Uh, so uh, let me finish my <laughs> thought, but I genuinely would love to hear what you have to say, because I'm looking at these pictures that are on the verge of the, which one is this, Moto 360? And I don't see an issue with the circular display. It's I, gigantic. I, that's the round one, right? Okay, well, hold. Yes, it's the round one. Now, hold on. Now, the, the one thing I was going to say is I have the tiniest wrists that any man has ever had in the, in the history of mankind. And so I think this thing would look ridiculous on me. But let's assume for a moment that I didn't have little teeny tiny wrists. I don't see what's so bad about this. I think it looks okay. It looks a lot better than a pebble. We're also sponsored this week. By our friends at Squarespace. They are back once again. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different this week. Squarespace recognizes that uh, that they have supported lots of podcasts, big and small. Uh, they really fund a lot of them, and, and we all thank them very much for that. Um, they want to be on the forefront of helping this medium reach the next level. But for this ad read, they wanted to try something different, something fun. Now, our friend Jonathan Mann, uh, also known as Song and Day Man, uh, Jonathan Mann, who wrote our theme song, which you've possibly heard before if you've ever listened to the end of our show, or let's be honest, the middle of our show. Um, if you've ever listened, to, so Jonathan Mann wrote our awesome theme song. He also recently uh, he was tired of hearing the same Squarespace reads over and over again, so uh, he wrote a Squarespace sponsorship song. It's the all-in-one platform makes it fast and easy to create. You can start with twenty highly customizable templates to make your own professional website or online portfolio. Industry-leading support at just eight dollars a month. Wow, you know the drill. You know where to go. Squarespace, get started today. Make the website that you want to make. Squarespace, so easy and fast. They fund all your favorite podcasts. They fund all your favorite podcasts. So start your free trial. No credit card. You can start a free trial with no credit card required. Start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to go to squarespace.com and use the offer code ATP to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for our show. Once again, use coupon code ATP to get 10% off. 
Thank you very much to Squarespace and to Jonathan Mann. Uh, thanks to Squarespace for sponsoring our show. Thanks to Jonathan Mann for being awesome. Squarespace, a better web, starts with your website. Now, John, why do smartwatches suck? I don't know what smartwatches in general, but the ones they showed at this Google thing, and I didn't watch all the smartwatch demo, but it, I watched enough to see what they're doing, essentially. And I, I had just talked about how it was a good idea that Google had a, a platform that spanned, you know, little screens to big screens and how that was a strength for them. But... I remain unconvinced that the correct way to do a smartwatch is to take your user interface that you have on your phones and your tablets and your TVs and continue to shrink it until it's on your wrist and then tap and swipe your way through a series of UIs that are custom made to fit on a very tiny screen. Because that just doesn't look like a good time for me. That doesn't look like something that's useful. You have to compromise certain certain UI elements and, and staples just don't work on a small screen like table views and stuff start to become ridiculous when you can see two items at once. And, you know, it's just... I don't think that's the right solution for a screen that small. In the same way that the right solution for a screen the size of a television isn't merely like a tablet UI made larger, right? It's something entirely different, never mind that you're not even touching it. It just doesn't seem like there's enough room down there if you just say, I'll just, I'll just take my regular Android OS and just make it smaller. And I'll keep the elements the same size so they're still touchable, but I don't want, you know, but if there's not room for a particular element, I just won't put that on there and I'll just have, you know, small things and you'll swipe and you're tap. Swiping and tapping on something that small just does, just looks like a non-starter to me. I mean, I've had, you know, the small iPod Nanos with the little touchscreen and everything, and, you know, it's just not... It doesn't work for me. So I I think there is another solution to things that big. Maybe it doesn't involve screens at all. If it does, maybe they behave in a different way. Maybe it's just a matter of putting different UI elements on that screen that don't exist in any form on any of the larger screens. Uh, so that, that's that's why I think these watches are, are duds. To some extent, I can see why Google pushes this whole, like, one interface scalable to every device size thing because they have to because that's that's the environment of android hardware like they they kind of have to do that in general um i do agree though it's it's going to be a pretty painful uh, approach for developers to try to to try to actually fulfill the promise of that and try to actually make like one interface that magically scales to all these different sizes and doesn't suck on any of them. Oh, I, I think it's I think it's custom UI for the phone. I'm just saying, like the elements that are involved, buttons, regions that you scroll, uh, controls for doing things. I, I mean, I guess they don't have text input because it's mostly speech or whatever. But just I, I, I'm assuming that you have to write a custom UI for this, and that they have custom controls for it. Certainly for things like the circular screen and all that stuff. But it's just that the the elements that are involved in the user interface. Things that you tap, things that you slide, things that you scroll through. I don't think there's enough room for that type of interface in a thing that small. And I'm I'm basing this mostly actually by using the touchscreen iPods that have the very small touchscreens. It just doesn't feel good at that size. The, the big problem that we've seen with almost all of the smartwatches that have come out so far, from the Pebble to these new ones, uh, it's all about the screen. And, and the screen is never big enough to be useful um, but never small enough to make for a good watch. And and that's why I think that really the whole idea of a smartwatch uh, might not, it might not be possible to make a good one. Um, certainly not with today's technology, uh, but maybe even ever. Like there's, there's just fundamental limits of like the ideal watch does not have a giant screen, but the ideal touch screen is big. And so it's, it's very hard to, to rectify that conflict design wise. You know, it, even if you could make it like infinitely thin and light and give it infinite battery life, you still have the issue of, you know, we, we need to somehow maximize, but also minimize the size of the screen. And uh, see, I don't know if you're right about that because, so I have a couple of friends that, that are watch collectors and 
I think I probably would be one of those people if A, I wasn't cheap, and B, I didn't have the tiny wrists that we spoke about earlier. But like, for example, a Rolex is a relative, well, the average stereotypical Rolex is fairly large. And like my one friend really, really loved Panerai watches, which I'd never heard of until I'd spoken to him about it. But they're very pretty, I believe Italian watches. And they're huge. They're freaking enormous. And like Clarkson and uh, Hammond on Top Gear, if memory serves, are both big into watches and typically wear these physically very, very large watches. So Right, because Top Gear presenters are the, the, the real fashion leaders of the world. But that's the point, though, that they're, all these people who are wearing these watches are wearing them for fashion reasons, not for utilitarian reasons. And they don't. How long do they spend looking at the face of those watches? Let alone pawing at the face of those watches. And zero time pawing at the face of the watches. Very short amount of times looking at the face of the watches. They're mostly wearing them as a as a piece of jewelry, as a fashion accessory, not as a utilitarian thing. So these none of these things qualify as fashion accessories because they're ugly. Especially the square one looks terrible. The circle one looks humongous. I guess if you're if you are a giant person, it is proportional to you. And then, but then you'll have equivalently giant sausage-like fingers and won't be able to use it anyway. But the <laughs> idea that anyone's going to spend any amount of time turning their wrist towards themselves and staring at their wrist and pawing at it with their finger to get stuff done, it's like just they'll just you know turn their wrist back down, take out their phone, like you know, a decade ago, people on the street weren't holding a rectangle staring at it with their head down all the time. Now you walk around a city street, everyone's got little rectangles out and they're staring at them. So that is a change in behavior. So it's conceivable that a couple of years from now, instead of everyone holding little rectangles, everyone is staring at their wrists as if they're trying to tell what time it is, but all can't tell time. Like, boy, I can only tell time in a digital <laughs> clock. And they're just staring at it and they're studying it. But really what they're doing is like reading Twitter on their wrist. I guess that's conceivable, but it still seems to me that that's not the... The smartwatch is not just a phone strapped to your wrist that's smaller. I think that is the wrong solution for smartwatches. And no matter how good technology gets, what if we can make it as thin as a piece of paper? If it's still watch-sized, I don't want to be holding it up, looking at it, or pawing at it with my finger. I think there is a role for something smart that's on your wrist. I'm just, I just don't think the role is like a tiny little phone on your wrist. Right, so maybe maybe the solution then, you know, because I, I think you're right. I, you know, so maybe the solution really is not to leave the interaction to the watch to to leave the watch really just be like a very you know as small as possible a just a display it could be an output device for for notifications oh i'm late for my meeting or you know voice input quickly and then it would start sounding off directions to your bluetooth headset to tell you where to turn as you walk through. like there i there are uses that i can see for i'm not saying a smart watch is dumb a smart watch is a good idea it's just that what the, these guys keep making is tiny phone on my wrist Right. Whereas if like if you if you give up on the idea that you should be pawing at your watch all the time, if the watch's primary purpose is to give you information at a quick glance and then you leave the interaction up to taking the phone into your pocket, which is you know better suited for the job in all in almost every case anyway, um, then you can make the watch substantially simpler and you can make the display much smaller and you can you can then I mean, it doesn't even need to be a touchscreen. I'm not getting one. <laughs> You don't even have an iPhone yet. I don't have a watch. <laughs> well, that's true. Of the three of us, I'm the only one who actually wears a watch, aren't I? I wore a watch in middle school. I, I wore a watch up until around the time I got an iPhone, and then I stopped wearing a watch, and then I just recently started again. I remembered my second thing. Oh, good. Tell us about your second We're thing. We're also sponsored. This. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. no, too early. Uh, so the, the, we were talking about the material UI, and I was talking about the metaphor taking too much prominence, both in a Google and Apple thing. The second thing is that's unique to what Google showed for their material thing. They only showed a little bit of it, uh, was that they've decided to do something that 
I thought more touch user interfaces would do. Uh, and the fact that no one has done it that much until Google demoed it is surprising to me, but maybe everybody knows something that Google doesn't. And that thing is showing uh, feedback for your touch as a matter of course, as a matter of like with the expectation that when you touch or do anything in the interface, the interface response lets you know you've done it. Now, that type of feedback is really important in regular user interfaces with, you know, a mouse and everything. Uh, because it's, it's indirect in a way. So you put your cursor over a button, you click the button, you want the button to highlight, and you want it to highlight on mouse down, and you want it to do something different on mouse up. Like, it, you want to feel like you're pressing it. So, the, you know, they used to have 3D-type interfaces where the buttons look puffy in early versions of Windows and Mac, and even to, to this, uh, today to some degree as well. And it lets you know that, that you were successful, that something was happening. Uh, if you just had a user interface where there were buttons and you click them and nothing happened and then eventually the dialogue went away, you might not be sure which button you click. The same thing with the uh, the menus that come down on the Mac. Uh, when you select a menu item on the original Mac, the menu item you selected would flash on and off a few times before the menu went away because they want you to know, yeah, you were trying to get that menu item. You did get that menu item. In fact, it was adjustable on the original Mac to be like one flash, two flash, or three flashes or whatever. Uh, visual feedback, what's going on? Touch elements do the same thing. Like in iOS, when you touch a button, it may invert or whatever like that. Uh, but the Material UI seems to go much farther in that it's almost giving you the kind of thing you see on a screen in presentations where they want you to show where the person is touching. You can't see their finger because they're using a device, but the device's screen is being projected. So they have like those little circles like that appear in the iOS simulator or whatever. But this is part of the, the OS, that you get a little circle with like little ripply lines coming out of it. And then when you select an element, a little ripple goes across the element to show that it's selected very heavy-handed feedback to let people know that, yes, I registered your touch, yes, it touched this item, and here it is. And not just on like individual items or buttons, but if they touch almost anywhere, like they were showing on the dial pad, you see the little ripples appear where you hit the dial pad, not just like the one button ripples, but where your finger touched. If you touched on the upper left of the one, a little ripple appears there. And I can't decide if this is brilliant or terrible. Uh, part of me that makes me think it might be brilliant is I've seen a lot of people use touch interfaces and not be sure whether their touches are doing anything. Now, granted, most of the time that's because they're using a touch device that is not as responsive as a top-end iOS device, like, say, uh, some cruddy Android thing where the interface is slow, and they'll stab at it a few times or hit the same button multiple times or try it and then take their finger off and then try it again because it didn't register that time. That that, that could be, must be frustrating for them. So if Android is the OS of choice for underpowered devices with non-responsive UIs, having really <laughs> having really heavy-handed visual feedback to let people know when their touch was registered and where where they where the device thinks they touched and what thing they just selected might be an excellent idea. But on the other hand, I think it would drive me insane because the whole point of a great a great touch interface is that it should feel like manipulating like a physical thing. Scrolling should stick to my finger, touching the button should immediately highlighting it like it should be it should be direct manipulation. I don't need this indirection. But if the indirection is there because everything is too slow, then maybe this kind of uh, interface is a good idea. And what, and what, what it makes me think is that if the world of Android users gets used to this eventually in four years when everybody's using this interface, they will find a device that does not do, do this, even if the device is super responsive, to be inferior because they'd be like, oh, I like the one that shows me where I touched. Does that sound crazy that that would be something that, that eventually people could latch onto and think is great? No, I mean, that's I, I think what we're seeing this year, what we saw a lot from Apple and, and I think what Google is is uh, has always been been doing to some degree and, and is continuing to do like this. We're seeing the platforms try to different try to differentiate themselves further uh, so that 
they lock people in more effectively because you know not a lot of people leave iOS for Android but a lot of people have left Android for iOS and certainly Google wants to stop that and certainly Apple wants to make the reverse less likely to happen in the future and and so you know we're seeing things like like you know Apple building building up a whole bunch of hype around things like CloudKit and the cloud services that you know the things that that don't appear on Android Google doing similar things with you know the levels of integration they can get the you know what they can permit app developers to do and now something like that certainly it could be it could be a strategic thing like that it probably probably wasn't i mean it's probably like i'm sure somebody thought about that after they came up with it and said oh this also has a side benefit of being you know some potential lock-in i I wouldn't view it as lock-in it's just like it's if it's if it's a feature that people like and they come to associate it with like that category of product right in the same way that essentially people came to associate a rectangle with a screen on it as what a smartphone looks like and everyone else had to make rectangles with screens on them because that's what people thought of as smartphones because iPhone defined the category. Uh, j- giving people something that they react to strongly, that makes them feel comfortable with the device, makes the device makes them feel comfortable using the device, makes it feel familiar and friendly. It's not lock in like, oh, I wish I could leave, but I can't because the other the other devices don't have this feature. Uh, it's that they like it and that they try to go to something else and they say. I miss, I miss that thing. I miss the ripples. It makes me feel, you know, like they, they might not be able to articulate it, but uh, like it, it's weird because I, like I said, I think I would hate that feature, but I think a lot of people might like it. And I think Apple would never do anything like that. Never, never that heavy handed. And so uh, Google may have just done something brilliant or people will hate it. And then Google will like turn it off or no apps will ever use this new UI except for the five things that Google makes. And it will continue to be a crazy fragmented <laughs> world over there, but we'll see. I think you're reading way too much into this. Aaron had a touchscreen phone with a slide-out keyboard, which was not a smartphone. It wasn't like a BlackBerry or anything like that. It was just a phone that had a touchscreen and a slide-out keyboard. This was right before she got her first iPhone. Uh, Around the same time, I was begging her to let me get her an iPhone, but she didn't think it was worth it. That's a different discussion for another time. Anyway, the point is that thing had tactic feedback insofar as, I think that's the right word, but anyway, it, it would vibrate a little bit when you touched it. And I believe it, like, had a little white spot on the screen where you touch the screen. And she didn't think anything of it as soon as she got her iPhone that that neither of those features, air quotes, were there. But that was so long ago that that, that phone must have been so awful and so unresponsive. And the vibration is just pointless because it's not telling you anything because it's not telling you where you did it. But like, that's that's a bigger leap from like from pre-iPhone smartphone to iPhone yet. No matter what the old ones had, eventually, even the physical keyboards that people held on for the longest time, eventually it's like, all right, just give up. It's you know no more physical keyboards. So I'd, everyone was won over that. But I think the gap between a modern Android device and a modern iPhone is small enough that this is like, especially with all the things they kept showing. I know they say this every year, but hey, look, we made our user interface more responsive. Uh, you know, eventually it's going to be true just because hardware gets better and better in these things. Uh, and everything they showed looked looked pretty darn smooth. So uh, I'm thinking that the gap is small enough that differentiators like this, uh, if they prove popular, uh, may be a problem for Apple in terms of getting people to uh, come over. Just like the big screens are in the same way, like the big gigantic screens that we thought, oh, I don't want to ever want a screen like it. But people love them. They love the big screens. And so Apple is essentially forced to field larger screen phones, we all assume, this fall uh, because that's what people love. You know, you're right. It's going to be just like the BlackBerry keyboard and the millions upon millions of people that are clinging to that. Also, a real-time follow-up. I don't. I think I might have said tactic. I meant haptic, so thanks to the chat room for correcting me. And thank you for the 35 people that are listening to this after the fact and have already emailed me to correct me. 
I thought you meant tactile, but anyway. That too. I think I, I think I kind of combined those in my head, but anyways. We are also sponsored by our friends at Lynda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com. Go to lynda.com slash ATP to learn more. Lynda.com helps you learn and keep up to date with your software, pick up brand new skills, or explore new hobbies with easy-to-follow, professionally produced video tutorials. Whether you want to learn a new programming language, create a graceful user experience for your website, or get your first code up and running with Objective-C, Lynda.com offers thousands of video courses and a variety of topics. They have over 2,400 courses. They're taught by industry experts, and they add more every week. They have uh, courses for all experience levels, whether you're beginner or advanced. They have general and specialty topics, and you get all of this for one low monthly price of just $25. And that gives you unlimited access to the entire lynda.com library, just 25 bucks a month for unlimited access. So they have all sorts of things. They have things like programming languages. You can learn PHP if you really want to. I would advise against it, but you can do it. Um, the good thing is it's much easier than, uh, than Node, Casey. Because uh, my PHP showbot stayed up. It's easier to create something <laughs> functional. It's not easier to <laughs> actually learn. Okay. So the, if you want to learn Node, you can do that too. You can even learn Perl if you're completely crazy. And if you otherwise, if you want to learn applications, you can learn some of the Adobe Creative Cloud apps. You know, Adobe just released updates uh, to the Creative Cloud stuff with new with new versions of their apps like Photoshop and Illustrator and stuff like that. Lynda.com works with software companies to get you updated video training the same time that, they're, that the updated versions are released. So they probably, I haven't checked tonight, but they probably already have all the new Adobe stuff up there already. Um, you can also learn uh, Final Cut Pro, Logic Pro. You, know, you can learn video editing, learn audio editing. If you want to make your own podcast, go into the Logic stuff and, and see. It's really cool. They have, uh, and, and they probably even have other stuff on podcasting if you don't want to use Logic. They have a huge library. So these courses are produced by professionals at the top of their field, and you can watch them anywhere. You can watch them on, on your computer, on your tablet, and your mobile device, uh, and they're broken up into these bite-sized pieces. So you can, if you only have 15 minutes at a time to watch something, you can do that. You can watch a 15-minute chunk. As you're watching, the transcript scrolls by on the side, and you can click to different points in the transcript. It'll jump to that point in the video. So it's very easy to find what you need to skim, to pause, to slow down, to go back if you miss something or you want some clarification. The, f- the presentation here is simply fantastic. So check it out. You can get a seven-day free trial by going to lynda.com slash ATP. That is lynda with a y dot com slash ATP. Thanks a lot to Linda for sponsoring our show once again. We need to get Apple to send WWDC videos to lynda.com because I would love to be able to click on a spot in a transcript because Apple's got the transcripts, right? And there's that guy who took the transcripts and made that ASCII WWDC site where you can search them. Yeah. We just need to put it all together, Linda style. I want the transcript on the left, the video on the right, and we're able to click on the transcript and have it jump to the spot in the video. That would make my life so much easier. Oh, yeah. Or even like I was thinking, I, I've, I've been like noodling in my head when, another idea I'll never have time to do, but I would love to just make an app, just make a, like probably a Mac app that it would be like you're watching the videos and it would, you know, you could like, you know, star the ones you want to watch. It would keep track of the ones you did watch. You could search, you know, search for topics, search for APIs. The WWDC app does that now, doesn't it? Yeah. The official app keeps track of what you watch, keep track of your playback position across devices. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Well, I guess only if you watch in the, in the app. I never even tried. Yeah. Crap. All right. Well, I'm glad I didn't make it. But it doesn't do the transcript thing. That's what I'm saying. It's the next step. Yeah. Like, why why can't you just hit Command F and and go right to something like you have to like browse through the titles and figure out what do they call the you know the accessibility yeah. section this year like what do they call that you know you- that's why note taking is still a big thing for me wwc because the slides have like seven words on them and the person on stage speaks important information that's not in the slides and it was particularly bad this year i thought where 
all the real information was spoken. It wasn't even like hinted at in the slides. The slide would have like one word on it and then the guy would talk for 10 minutes like, oh, this is the stuff. So I had to write that down <laughs> because you can't when I can't for research purposes, I can't go back to the video and watch it in real time because it takes forever. I have to have the notes. Well, that's the other thing too. The w one thing that's extremely valuable with watching these videos is the variable speed playback in uh, QuickTime Player Seven, and I'm probably like VLC and everything else does too. But but I think QuickTime X does not do it. But uh, so you can you know it's just like just like a podcast, you can play these videos at like 1.5x, and it helps a lot because the the WBDC sessions are pretty slowly paced because you know they want everyone in a room full of people, many of whom English is not their first language. They want everyone to understand it and to keep to be able to keep up. And, you know, in a giant room, and and that's very different when you're watching a video at home, um, and especially if you're like if you're like looking for something specific or waiting for something specific that you know they mentioned or that you think they might have mentioned, and you want to like skip around a bit and play through sections fast, and and it's it's so nice to be able to uh, do that. Yeah, I remember uh, the earlier I said it wasn't uh, making fun of Google's inability to do presentations is not a productive avenue, but since we're talking about WWC the most obscure out of the way in the tiny little room in the corner of Moscone about some API and framework that nobody uses except 10 people. That person's presentation and demos were better than everything at Google I.O. <laughs> like if they're somewhat an engineer who is not a professional presenter at WWDC at the very least goes through some sort of regime where they make them make your slides comprehensible to the point where they work on everything they say, where they make sure the demos are tight, where they get them done. And, uh, it just amazed me how the Google I.O. presenters, for the most part, did not even get the basics right. They, they rambled. Their slides had too much stuff on them. They tried demos that didn't work well. Even if the demos had worked well, they wouldn't be demonstrating anything worth demonstrating. It was not a good showing. I mean, I don't think that's important except for in the sort of, you know, fun, giggly Twitter snark type nature of the thing. But it's at a certain point, Google should get better at that. Do you think they really care? They do. They're trying. Like you can tell the early parts of the presentation, I thought, were together. Like when, what's his name? Sundar. I can't remember his last name. Such as the P. When he was up there talking about Android, the slides had bullet points that were important. He would address each one of them. There wasn't too much going on. Uh, like it was, it was straightforward and to the point, but it just started meandering and things started going wrong. And like I said, even if every demo that had gone wrong had gone perfectly, I still don't think those were the right demos to have, especially not in a keynote. Hey, real-time follow-up uh, from Sam the Geek in the chat room. Apparently, QuickTime Player X does have variable speed playback. Uh, it's in the extremely discoverable, <laughs> the extremely discoverable position of uh, option clicking the fast forward button. Yeah. How does anybody even know that? I have no idea. I saw underscore do it on the plane, and I was like, wait, how did that just happen? And then he had to show me because, <laughs> like you said, I had no idea what it was. QuickTime Player X doesn't have the most important feature, which is get the freaking controller off of my video. <laughs> <laughs> the most important feature. Not still uh, missing, which is oh, why I still have QuickTime Player 7 installed, and that's what I still use. All right. Is there anything else on Google I.O.? Um, they say 60 frames per second this year. They also say this year is the year of desktop Linux. Right. And uh, and Duke Nukem Forever finally came out. Yeah, actually, it did. It did. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and then uh, Android TV Iteration 9 is here. And so that's going to set the world aflame. I mean, eventually they're going to have to you know get those in some TVs. I mean, man, the, the, the previous Google TV and somebody in the chat, I'm sorry, I forget who, and it's too far up to scroll now, but... Uh, Somebody in the chat pointed out, like, it's kind of confusing, like, the branding between, like, okay, what's Google, what's Android, what's Chrome, you know, like, they have, and, 
you know, John, you mentioned earlier that that Google is better at having this like cohesive cross device experience. And honestly, I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, if you look at things like, you know, the Chromecast and Chromebooks and versus Android versus Google services, like it's it's pretty fragmented, actually. The naming of the things is bad, but first of all, if we're just comparing against Apple, which is what I'm doing, they win on TV because Apple doesn't have a way for third parties to do anything on TV. So Google wins by default, right? Even if you're ignoring like that, I think also Google's interfaces they showed on their television are better than Apple TV ones. Apple TV is not a platform for anybody except for selected Apple partners. So they win there. And the second thing is Apple, uh, Google's big thing is web apps and stuff. And so that's their, you know, that's their platform. You may not like it. You may think native apps are better. But they're working hard to make, you know, like this new UI, for example, is available to web apps at 60 frames per second in Chrome. And Chrome runs on all of their devices from the Chromebooks to you can run it on your phone, you can run it on your tablet, it runs on your television. Like that's their unifying force. Uh, and Android runs on most of these things except for the Chromebooks. But their whole thing is web app, native app, doesn't matter. It's going to look the same if it comes from Google. We're, we're, we're telling you that we think it's going to perform the same with 60 frames per second animation. That's their strategy. Um, and... I give them the win over Apple because Apple has nothing on television except for this box that only does selected things, and they don't just don't have that unification across platforms. Now, like like I said, like the, the iOS OS 10 split uh, is going to get a lot better in Yosemite and iOS 8, but that's not quite here yet. But even there, the split is much larger than the split between I think uh, the Chrome OS and Android, simply because Google is a web company, and their whole big thing is web apps and they shouldn't they shouldn't be second class citizens to native apps they continue to be but google is really hammering on making that not be the case and if it's going to not be the case somewhere the first place it's going to not be like that is on google's platforms because google is highly motivated to make web apps feel and look just as good as native apps you know something we skipped um before we leave google io is apparently gmail has a restful api now yeah i put i put that in the notes because everyone's freaking out about it yeah, everyone's freaking out saying that this is going to replace IMAP and and I'm the fir- I'm the first person to say that yeah, I would not I would not assume that that Gmail IMAP support will be there for very much longer. In fact, I I, pr- I made a prediction. I forget exactly what time interval I said. I think within 2 or 5 years, I was pretty sure that it that uh Caldav and Gmail IMAP would both be discontinued or sunset or whatever whatever phrase they would use. But uh but they say I I I know with this particular case of the Gmail API I know that Google has actually explicitly said this is not supposed to replace IMAP. Exactly. Right. Of course, they can they can say whatever they want, but I think in this case they're probably telling the truth that they probably do not intend do not intend this thing to replace IMAP. But what this probably will do though is is maybe hasten the uh, the the ability for them to discontinue IMAP in a in a uh, marketable way because they hate IMAP access. They really do. They. They, I'm sure they can't wait to get rid of it. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's really like, if you think about every, the, all the ways that that, that Google uh, operates, makes money, innovates. You know, Gmail and IMAP have never gotten along very well. It's IMAP support and Gmail has always been pretty flaky and unreliable and slow and very limited because a lot of Gmail's features just don't fit in the model of what IMAP is and, and how IMAP has to represent the, the mailboxes and everything. And there's always like the hack of like the, the all messages mailbox and all sorts of crazy stuff that just, it, it just causes problems. And, and so, uh, you say all that, and I know that there's some amount of truth there, but I use Google apps for my domain and I use IMAP and 
maybe I'm just not a Gmail power user, but I almost never have any problems. I really don't. And I agree with you that, that it's contrary and counter to the way they make money, which is for me to be on the website looking at their ads. But I, I'm never on the website, very rarely on the website, anyway, on the Gmail website, because I have no particular need for it. I don't particularly fancy the web uh, interface. I know I were last I heard John, I know you do, and that's fine. Um, but I am just fine with the iOS mail app. I'm just fine with mailbox on the Mac. And I use IMAP constantly for Google apps. And I really don't have any big problems. Uh, I think like Marco said, IMAP has never been a good fit for the way Google does email. Oh, certainly uh, not. So like I, when I first saw this API, I was excited because of what I thought it meant was that Google was finally getting rid of IMAP. And I think the, the reason Google should get rid of IMAP, like, or, you know, slowly phase it out is not to like cut off third party clients or whatever. In fact, that's the reason that they'll probably have to keep it around forever. Just to, if, if they want to continue to support like, you know, customers and clients that use IMAP, but just because it's a, it's a poor fit for their, uh, for their mail service, their mail acts in a different way then IMAP expects mail to act. And I like the way Gmail acts. So I was like, all right, well, so fine. Keep IMAP around for the legacy clients. Make a new fancier API that works the way Gmail works. And, you know, they talk, make it faster, make it not just a better match semantically, but make it be able to do things with, uh, you know, higher performance like search or, or bulk operations and all this good stuff. Uh, but then I looked at the documentation and in the first couple of paragraphs of the documentation, it says, note, the Gmail API should not be used to replace IMAP for full-fledged email client access. So that's straightforward right there in the very first thing in the, in the Gmail API documentation. If you are writing what they consider it, what they call a full-fledged email client, don't use this. Use IMAP. So that's a shame. Like Then now it's just like, oh, this is just a way for applications that want to do something with mail to be able to send mail through your Gmail account. And it's nice because you can only you can only ask for permission to send, not to read. And then your app can send out through Gmail using this API instead of doing, you know, like, I think it's a good idea to have this API, but it becomes much less interesting when they're saying right out, it is not for making an email client. So that that alone means that IMAP has to, either IMAP has to stay around for a much longer time or eventually Google phases out IMAP and says, no, you have to go through the web UI. But it's, I think it would be difficult for Apple, for Google to go back on IMAP at this point. You know, this is, this is kind of a left turn here. And, and I, but I, I had a uh, possibly interesting thought the other day. Um, you look at things like, you know, the proliferation of, of apps taking over from websites uh, for where modern interaction and computing is really happening these days. Combine that with, Android with its uh, intense, Windows 8 with its contract, and now iOS 8 with its uh, uh, extension system. Are APIs necessary anymore? Yes. Why? Uh, because, I mean, for web services, if you if you want to interact with something that's not on the same device as you are, like HTTP APIs for things like everything, reading Twitter, posting to Twitter, getting email, uh, any of the existing native code systems for uh, allowing uh, one application on the same machine to communicate to another don't apply to, I mean, like that, that's the unifying principle of Google is that they would instead say the opposite and that like everything should be like a web app and everything should communicate through RESTful APIs, even if it's on the same machine. And really it shouldn't matter where your thing is hosting it. Everything should all be the web and blah, blah, blah. That's obviously not the path that Apple's going down or, or, or Google that matter for Android, but APIs are, are definitely still a thing, both remote and local. Well, think about how many of those of those instances you just mentioned. I mean, certainly, you know, there's there's always going to be some that, that can't be done this way. But think about how many of the, of the things you just mentioned could be, like, 
rather than call in the Gmail API, just, you know, the user will probably have the Gmail app on their phone because they use Gmail. So just call out to the Gmail app and have it do something and then, you know, kick back to you or whatever. What does the Gmail app do? It calls the Gmail API because the Gmail servers are on the other side of an HTTP connection. Well, sure. Well, I, okay. I mean, public APIs, obviously, like public web service APIs are, you know, are, do, do those really need to be a major thing anymore? Like, you know, a, a, could you plausibly launch a new web service today with, you know, that has some kind of social everything without an api i mean people do all the time but like how far could you go without having an api and and are we at a point now where having an api is the exception not the rule because you know five or ten years ago everything had to have an api that was what people did and you wouldn't you wouldn't become big if you didn't have an api i do think that's still true though like this twitter is a great example which got big based on its api and now wants to essentially cut everybody off from it but they wouldn't have gotten big without the api so like i don't know i i think that avenue to getting big like i think it's still required to get big no if you if you if you have some great thing but you say but there's no api but we've made selected private libraries that use an api that you're not allowed to use and you could put those libraries or apps on your devices and kind of like I don't think you would get big like that. It would be like not being free in the beginning and charging everybody tons of money. I, I think the tractor to get big is to try to at least make a show of, look, we're part of the community and you can interoperate with us and we have this great API and really encouraging people to build on you. Yeah, sure. If you've got a service and we've got a service, we should our services should talk to each other. We should integrate. It'll be great. We'll have these great synergies. And then when you get big, then you can start turning the screws and cutting everybody off and charging money for API access and all those wonderful things that we love to hate. So are you saying, Marco, that let's take an example that you're in a Twitter app and or let's take Instagram, perhaps you're in Instagram and you want to tag a photo with a location and you want to do that using the Foursquare API rather than have some sort of uh, a view within the Instagram app, you could dump out to the Foursquare extension that lets you search and then the Foursquare extension will take the location that you've selected and punt it back to Instagram. Is that sort of what you're envisioning? Basically, yeah. Like I, I'm looking at this from the perspective not of, you know, what's best for everybody technically, but what's most likely to be best for everyone business wise and what are they most likely to do. And, you know, you can look, you know, John, what you know what you just said about how APIs are kind of the requirement uh to, you know, for for good growth, I'm not sure that's true anymore. I mean it Look at look at big services that have launched like in the last five years. Um, many of them don't have an API. Many of them launched without one and now have one that's kind of half half assed or or even like extremely restricted. Like even Google Plus, Google's own service. I mean, this is not a good example because it you know kind of failed. But uh, even Google Plus launched with a very limited read only API. And uh, if it didn't even did it even have that at first. Anyway, I know when they launched the API, whether it was at launch or not, when they launched the API, it was read-only, and I think it might still be. Um, Instagram, perfect example, got huge, and they had a very limited API that I believe was usually read-only for almost everybody uh, at the beginning. And, and it's easy, you know, APIs have a big problem. This is the problem Twitter faced, which is it's, it becomes very hard to monetize if you become a dumb pipe. Uh, unless you do, you know, sometimes you can do creepy things, but for the most part, like if you, if people, if your API is mo- is mostly an accessory to your service and people still keep coming to you and using your apps and your website to, for the primary interaction with your service, that's fine. But if the API becomes your service and people are really only interacting with you through the API, it's very challenging to run a business that way uh, for, for certain business models and certainly anything free and ad based. And so, you know, I, 
I think we can look back at, at the golden era of web APIs in like the mid 2000s when everything had an API and everyone was talking about them as being like the big requirement. We can look back at that time and we can say, you know, actually, in retrospect, that was kind of a problem. A lot of those APIs were that used to be like free and naive are now like super locked down and limited. Uh, and it's pretty easy to see that that was kind of giving away too much of the farm. Whereas now, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm mixing, mixing metaphors there. Whereas now we have this other way where you, the service provider, can have these apps on these different platforms. And you, don't need, you don't need to cover that many of them. You can have these apps on these different platforms that all have these ways to kind of offer API-like services to other apps without actually giving up the farm, without actually losing that much control, and, and you know, while keeping everything locked down and private for the most part behind the scenes. Well, there's a line between not having an API and having and becoming an API only pipe like and we see that we see uh, Twitter and that continuum and the, in the beginning was like, yeah, sure. Everybody build on Twitter. Everyone make your own crazy clients. We want all sorts of different clients. We want, uh, you know, any place you can talk to our uh, our API, it'll do. And then, they, you know, becoming the dumb pipe where pe- most people's interaction with Twitter was not through anything that Twitter controlled. That's one extreme. But the other extreme is not having one at all. Twitter still has an API, right? At the, at the very least, they would have some kind of API for like embedding tweets and putting little controls and buttons i mean you can say oh that's not an api but it is it's a public api I'll put this markdown on your page post to this url make these buttons run this javascript like there has to be an api it just doesn't have to be like you want to encourage people to integrate with your product you don't necessarily want to encourage people to become your product and so I think the API use, people have learned, you know, like you said, don't become don't become a faceless API because then you become app.net, right? Uh, don't let everyone else define the experience of using your product. It's the same way as like Apple, you know, taking control of its dev tools. Don't let uh, Code, uh, Metroworks and Code Warrior and PowerPlant become the face of your platform because then you've lost control. But I think you have to have some kind of web-based API if you want to interoperate with the wider world because you're never going to hit every platform. And realistically speaking, the little libraries and apps that you make for all the different platforms are going to have to be hitting an API anyway. And if they can hit it, then other people are going to hit it. And do you really want to get into some kind of sort of security war about having secret API endpoints that people have to figure out how to hack into? And so they're just going to use OAuth or something anyway. Anyone can do it. You know, it's just a matter of getting an API key and then they extract it. It's just, I, I think APIs will still be here, but I think you're right that the lesson has been learned by several people in a painful way. Uh, don't make your API the only thing you offer because then other people will become your product for you. But is that so bad? I mean, there's sponsored posts in Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. And I haven't seen them pushed on me in Tweetbot, for example, but there's nothing stopping them from being pushed on me, right? I think we're in the minority of people who are who are not using the official, as, as crazy as it is for us to True. think about. No, you're right. Uh, that, that we, we don't use the official Twitter app, but I bet... What would you say? What do you think? Most people who use Twitter at all use the official Twitter app on their oh, mobile devices? No question. And, and like, we are an oddity because we were there early. We don't look at Twitter that way. And Twitter, thus far to Twitter's credit, has been like, okay, you know, they, they shut the door on us. We are in a little room together with our limited API tokens <laughs> from the apps that were there in the beginning. And, and no one bothers us and they just don't have to worry about us and all our growth is with those other people they could have said you know what third party stuff is turned off now you have to use this official client uh, and i don't think it actually would have hurt them that much because all of us would have left and been pissed maybe the problem is well, all of us might have like all gone to app.net and actually made that a viable platform or something but in the grand scheme of things uh, we don't matter and so 
I'm glad that Twitter is not shoving stupid crap down our throat, our throats, but I'm kind of sad that like, we're never going to get like multiple images or these other features they're adding. And now oh, they got that already. That's in, that's in tweet now. Is it? Yep. I thought that wasn't even available to third party clients. Uh, well, you can view multiple images. I don't know if you can post them. Yeah. Well, anyway, like they're adding features and they don't care if third party, if it's available for their legacy third party ones. And so I, it doesn't surprise me that they're not making us choke down ads because who cares about us? We're, off in the corner somewhere and it's probably the best move for them not to anger us anymore and just allow us to stew in our in our little private third-party twitter clients all right anything else we need to uh talk about there's a little bit of talk that we kind of skipped over about swift and apple i think john this was mostly you do you want to touch on that uh actually i want to talk about art briefly first before the, the swift thing art was in the thing art is not a new thing it's something that they introduced in kitkat uh, but now it's official for their new OS. This will be their new runtime that they're using instead of the previous Dalvik virtual machine. This is them refining. I mean, this not this. I'm saying this is their answer to uh, Swift and iOS and uh, the A7 and all that stuff. But they're feeling pressure to have a more performant, less battery sucking uh, engine underneath their platform. So the, the language they use is Java for, for development. They had their own Java virtual machine that they wrote themselves, which is kind of novel called Dalvik that they've had for many, many years. This new one is a new virtual uh, machine that is better about memory management and like has fewer stalls for garbage collection, shorter stalls for garbage collection, produces better code that runs faster on all the CPUs they target. I think they listed ARM, x86, and MIPS. Uh, and they showed a bunch of performance figures showing how this is better. So I'm glad to see that Google is making progress on sort of the fundamental lowest level of that platform to make their applications faster. Um, and it shows the advantages that, that they have of, you know, having a memory safe language in a virtual machine and that this change, this fairly radical change under the cover does not require any changes uh, in anyone who wrote their application using Java. If you, you know, if you use their API and wrote the thing, you don't have to know or care about this. They just made your runtime faster. Whereas compare this to Apple, which has made the Objective-C runtime faster many times over, but you'd always have to relink your app against it or use certain features like fast enumeration. You have to change your source code to use them. Uh, I guess, you know, when they improve Objective-C message send, everyone gets the benefit when they uh, recompile against the new libraries, but then it was only available 64-bit and blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, I'm glad to see Google making progress there. Uh, mostly because I like the idea of virtual machine-based languages. I guess I'll probably have more to say about that when I do the Swift section of my OS X review. <laughs> How's that coming, by the way? Slowly, as always. Slowly and painfully. Thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week, Raise Labs, Squarespace, and Lynda.com. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M E-N-T Marco Arment S-I-R-A-C U-S-A Syracuse It's accidental Accidental They didn't mean to
could have fit the Swift thing in before the song. You know, you can tell how unprofessional we are because here it is. I queue up John to talk about A. He talks about B. And then before we get back to A, we end the show. Can it fit in the after show? It can be like follow down. Oh, yeah, I, can, I can throw it in. I just, it's a reward for the people who keep listening. This is still on topic, but hey, you, you made it through the song and here we are on the other side. This is your reward. <laughs> yeah. It was something I've been thinking about since WWDC about how Apple is being more open with things. And I've, I've seen things from Apple since WWDC that I had not seen from Apple in years and years and years, maybe not ever in the, the second Steve Job era, like after 97. Uh, and that is the phenomenon of Apple employees saying in a more or less official capacity something that Apple is going to do in the future. Mm. Yeah, we saw that today, which I think you're about to bring up. Right. And not just today. I've seen it many, many times uh, since WWC. The one just and I keep seeing it, which is blowing my mind. The one today was like Mike Ash did a blog post about Swift. Chris Latner responded to the blog post and said, uh, that thing you were complaining about, we're going to change that, which is basically talking about an unannounced product. And I've seen that multiple times about, you know, nerdy technology is not like, oh, we're making a watch like they're not going to say that. Right. But uh, about nerdy technology, the only developers care about, but developers are willing to say like, oh, yeah, uh, that API doesn't exist for whatever, but we're going to make it like we're going to introduce it before GM or that feature you asked for. We're doing that right now. Not sure when it's going to be done. That's you know, Apple does not comment on future products, but apparently Apple now comments on future technologies. I mean, WWC being open, anyone being able to watch the videos and actual Apple engineers saying what is, you know, this is not exciting or surprising to anyone who has deals with any company other than Apple. But historically, Apple engineers would never say anything, even in like the most obscure little thing. Like, I think that this uh, this uh, argument to this method should accept nil and, and it shouldn't be an error. And you just have to sit there and wait until eventually like your bug was closed or just a release comes out and that's in the release notes. Instead, today, Apple an Apple engineer will say, uh, yeah, we're in the process of doing that. It'll be in the next build. Uh, I guess that has happened to some degree, like on the dev forums in past builds and stuff like that. But this is about something big, like Swift is bigger than just one obscure API. Swift is a whole language. And uh, on the dev forums, for example, people are complaining about missing features in the Swift language and people, uh, you know, who are writing Swift are coming on the dev forums and saying, you're right. That feature is missing. We're adding it now. It will be there soon. Like talking about future products, it's just blowing my mind that this is happening. And any second, I expect a black helicopter to come in and like close the thread and delete the post and nuke everything. <laughs> and you know, so that's the dev forum. So we're technically under an NDA, which I wasn't, which is why I wasn't talking about details. This was on a public blog post. Uh, I forget, what was the thing that he was talking about in there? It was uh, oh, array semantics being crazy, which they are. Uh, I mean, it was vague. It was like we know they're crazy. We're going to try to fix it. Yay. Thumbs up. See, was that that hard, Apple? Did the world end? You know, and like if they don't <laughs> fix it, is everyone going to go on there? Well, I totally expected you to fix the crazy array semantics because I saw that comment on that blog post, but you didn't fix it. I hate you, Apple. Like that's the that's the thing that they're protecting against. And I suppose that could happen if uh, Yosemite ships and iOS 8 ships and Swift's array semantics are still crazy pants. Then people are going to like cite that blog post and say, we can't trust you, Apple. You say things, but then don't do them. I don't know. I just assume they're just going to do it and everything will be fine. But it is definitely weird to see that and definitely a change for Apple. So what's the downside to it for them? I just said the, the downside. The downside is if they don't do this thing, then crazy people will be all cranky. But is that really why they didn't do it for all this time? I mean, yeah, because you can't predict the future. You don't do it for all this time because if they say something and then they're not able to deliver it, 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 it breaks trust. So they just say nothing. 
Yeah, I, I guess. But to your point about like developer tools that are coming, who cares? Like, I, I just, I don't, I don't really see the need for all the secrecy up until this point. I applaud the, the opening up that they've been doing lately, but I don't know. It just seems like a pretty weak reason to be so unbelievably secretive. I, I, it seems to me like the reason they were secretive is because they felt like it was cool to be secretive. If you're secretive about products, you're going to be secretive about everything. Well, it's not just about, it's not, not a cool factor, but like it's, you know, like someone just put in the chat room, uh, under promise and over deliver. It's, it's the safe bet. You will have, uh, you will not disappoint people. You will only surprise them uh, because the only way you disappoint somebody is sit by saying you're going to do something and then not doing it. If you never say anything and you don't do it, you haven't disappointed anyone because they should have had no reason to expect that you were going to do something. But if you say you're going to do something and don't do it, then people are disappointed. But is that really true? I mean, the, the market, I know the market isn't really the best judge of anything. However, you know, anytime Apple doesn't release a TV or, or a watch, the market has a fit about it. And they've never said anything about doing any of those things. That's I think that would be a counterexample because Tim Cook kept saying we're going to enter new product categories. So, yeah, as soon as he says that, like a year ago, every time Apple does anything and doesn't enter a new product category, you know, people will say you said you're going to enter a new product category and you did something, anything and the thing involved in that did not enter a new product category. Therefore, I hate you now, Apple. Who cares? Like, <laughs> but, but This is more of the larger the feature, the less you'd want to say stuff like this. Like, you know, if you're talking about like uh, this, this API is uh, is available, but it's uh, iOS 7 only. And if someone from Apple were to say, actually, we're going to backport that to iOS 6 too. People would be like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. I can't wait until that happens. My app will be able to run on iOS 6 and 7 and use this cool new API. And then, like, the OS comes out and they say, sorry, we didn't get time to backport that to iOS 6 and now we're never going to. People would hate Apple. They'd be like, oh, you said you were going to. I planned my business around it. You've, you know, destroyed my livelihood. So Whereas if they just say nothing and they say, file a bug if you'd like to see that on iOS 6 or whatever, you know, they don't make any promises. They just don't say anything and say if you every time you ask them a question they say this api is available for ios 7 but is it going to be on ios 6 this api is available for ios 7 like that's the old apple way and there are serious upsides to that but at a certain point it becomes ridiculous as you get tinier and tinier like are you going to fix this typo in the documentation it's no skin off apple's back to say yes we're going to fix that typo in the documentation in fact i'm fixing it right now you should see it in the next build like that's always been under the line like no big deal but once you move from typos up until you know API features, API availability, language features, that's starting to get into some serious territory. And, you know, it's, this, is the, this is the new Apple, I think. And, and I applaud it. And I think Marco had said, or one of us had said right before WWDC, that we didn't really know crap about what was coming. When we knew Health Kit, which we thought was Health Book, and there were like one or two other things, but certainly nobody knew Swift was coming. And, and that made it so much more enjoyable. I'm not saying Apple shouldn't be secretive about like product launches. I'm talking like you're like you are, John, about this. And I, I, I'm going to call it minutia, but perhaps it isn't. But stuff that for the most part really isn't going to make or break anyone. And yes, you know, you just you just had an example of where it could break someone. But I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised it took this long for them to open up. Well, it's a continuum. Like the one I think of also is 64 bit carbon which they said they were going to have and then changed their mind on. And that's just like a bummer. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like they didn't have it almost all done is my understanding. And it wasn't like they didn't plan on doing it. They did plan on doing it. They did say they were going to do it, but they changed their mind the next year. And that did really seriously affect people. And, you know, secrecy wouldn't have saved them there because that was sort of, sort of like they said, they said at WWDC that they're going to have 
OS 10, 10, 10, and iOS 8. Those are speaking about future products, but we assume that those will actually arrive, that they won't say, you know what, never mind about iOS 8. Like, it seems like a safe bet, but technically that's exactly the same thing. Saying, we do not have this for you now. It is not completed, but we will. And making a comment about a feature in Swift, like saying, we, we agree that the array semantics are stupid. We are working on them, and we plan to have the better version of them available before any of our whatever operating systems ship. That's a pretty concrete statement about something that's going to happen. It's probably not much more concrete than saying iOS 8 is coming and we're going to ship it and here's the rough time frame. Uh, but it, it is definitely a change. Like normally they would just let the blogs all complain about stuff in Swift and secretly be over there saying all these people are complaining about, you know, feature X, whereas we know that feature X has been checked in two weeks ago and we're just like testing it out now and it'll ship in the next seed and won't those people be pleasantly surprised but now those people can actually go onto the internet and tweet at the people like i just totally did that don't worry it's coming and what else is going on i think there's a uh m3 at the local dealer i haven't actually gone by yet but i why not uh, because my car is actually going in monday anyway so i'll see it then and then i'll probably steal it and then get arrested and that'll be the end of atp we can keep doing it with you in jail all I know is I, I want an M3 really bad. <laughs> Sorry. Luigi follow only the Ferrari. What? I didn't do my pop culture reference to the show. I stuck it in at the end. Oh. I got right. it. I've seen that movie a million times. Yay! Marco has children. Soon Casey will too. A million times. I know every line of that movie because I've seen it a million times. You want to scream it from the top of someplace very high. <laughs> I hear you now. Uh, you see, I was going to say that how could that movie possibly get old? But I know enough to know that any movie could probably get old. Well, it's actually a pretty good movie. I mean, that's that's the I think that's one of the reasons why adults love Pixar movies so much is because if your kids are going to make you watch the same movie every single day for three months, it might as well be a pretty decent one. Yeah, you don't, maybe you don't know how bad it can get. Like, I mean, you're probably protecting yourself from it. I, and the thing is, like... Cars, people say it's not one of the better Pixar movies, uh, and maybe I kind of agree there, but I, lots of people who don't have kids dislike it much more than I do, because now in retrospect, the memory of Cars is entirely tied up with the memory of my son when he was young and watching that movie a lot, and I think the same thing will happen to Marco, and that, that gives the movie a fondness that it wouldn't have had if you had just seen it on your own. Just wait until Adam gets older and you remember when he was a little peanut and he would watch the movie over and over again. God, I love Cars. Cars 2 is freaking terrible, though. I haven't seen Cars 2 because I heard it was terrible. So I, I've, I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not even buying that on the Apple TV. I'm just leaving that off. Don't do it. And the worst part is uh, Michael Caine is in it. And I love Michael Caine, but the movie was still terrible. Well, he's not terrible. Like, you don't know terrible until you've seen, like, Dora the Explorer or something like that. I mean, terrible is a whole other thing. The movie is just, meh. It's just there. It's all right. Yeah, that's all right. I'll have to put that one in the parking lot for now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you want to do titles on one of the functional showbots, which means not mine? Yeah, how about put that in the parking lot for now? <laughs> can do You're obsessed that. with, with uh, business speak terminology. Oh, it's just, I can't, like, what planet is everyone on? Marco, to put things in perspective, I went to a client today at, what time was it? About 9 for a 10 o'clock demo. That demo lasted half an hour. I spent half an hour dealing with um, security-related things because it's a new client, so I had to get fingerprinted. 
I had to go swear that I had antivirus on my computer. Then I needed to prove that I had antivirus on my computer. Then we, I spent from 1130 till five in consecutive meetings talking about the work that has been done and the work that needs to be done. My God. That was from 1130 until five in the evening. When does the Scrum or Fall standoff happen? Actually, the the end of – so it was a retrospective, which is part of Agile, oh. and then it was sprint planning, which is part of Agile. But the problem is this is for a large government entity, and I don't think most of the business people in the room th – th these are our own internal business people – had had a lot of experience with like doing Scrum, uh, Agile software projects. And so it's really kind of Scrum or Fall at best, and that's just bad. But anyway, so uh, back to titles. Did they have a parking lot? Uh, no, not today, actually. How about a basement? Is there? Do you like put things in the basement ever? Nope. nope. Just the parking lot. Uh -huh. What about like you know back behind the dumpster? Like, is there? Nope. The alley? Is there an alley even? Nope. You can't like throw something off the fire escape. Is that no, Marco? You've got the same metaphors in iOS development: basement UI. You know, just speaking of basement, same. It's the same <laughs> stuff. The hamburger basement metaphor. Exactly, it's the same exact thing. Why is that terminology okay, but this terminology is not? Because we are right. Uh -huh. Oh my god, that is the most Marco statement I've ever heard. In my defense, I don't like the hamburger basement metaphor. <laughs> but you use it because it's a way to communicate with other people a shorthand. That's exactly what buzzwords and lingo are supposed to do. You can say this and then uh, be assured that everyone who you're talking to knows what you mean without you having to explain it the long way. <laughs> there was there was some time where I, where I mentioned Hamburger Basement on Twitter a few months back, and I got the best responses from people who didn't know what that was. <laughs> they're just like, what? Yeah, and they and they're they were fulfilling your role now, saying, "Is there an alley?" Blah blah blah. Anyway, um, I actually like breaking bots. I think that's. I don't think it should necessarily be the show title, but it is pretty funny. I'm also a big fan of. I'm not getting one. There's actually two of them: one with a period, one without. If you combine their ratings, it's probably even better. So you could you could up the working showbots features by uh, doing better normalization and getting rid of trailing periods. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll, I'll I'll get to that as soon as I can keep the thing running for more than ten freaking minutes. You got one more show, Casey. This is like that uh, that old website. Uh, give up and use tables. <laughs> which like, start a timer for you to try to do things back in the bad old days of CSS when you couldn't do lots of stuff with CSS. Uh, you get one more show, and then Marco and I are going to force you to stop using WebSockets. And then four shows after that, you got to use Perl. Because oh. no, realistically speaking, <laughs> we, we should have stopped you from using WebSockets before you started using them for a show bot, because there's no reason to use them except for technical curiosity. So we'll give you an out. We'll give you a couple of weeks to say, okay, you just want to do this because you're just playing with things. You want to use WebSockets because they're neat and cool. Fine, go ahead. But at a certain point, we have to say, look, just make it work. Stop using WebSockets. But if you think about it, it's the right answer. For it, uh, leave No, it is not. A persistent connection to the clients of like, no, it is not the right answer. Well, it actually is useful because it gives you the, the immediate feedback of when new stuff comes in. You don't need immediate People are staring at the show. I need to see if someone has changed a vote right now. You don't. The The latency on, on people looking at show voting does not need to be real time. We are, this is not like a game or a simulation where we need feedback constantly. Like, 
it's not the appropriate technology for this purpose. You could have a fifth, yeah, five minute refresh interval and it would be fine. It's just a showbot. It's not, it's not a real time 3D application. John, the last time I said it's just a showbot, it was about hardening said showbot. And we all saw how that ended. But the web sockets are, are fighting against you in, in that area. Like they're making it worse. It's, it's a technology that either is not mature enough or, I mean, it seems like the libraries we're dealing with it aren't mature enough because if they were, you wouldn't be having all these problems. I just can't imagine what the heck is going on behind the scenes here that's causing even the the worst, crappiest, slowest VPS in the universe to overload and crash. It's not overloading. It's just throwing an exception that nobody catches, and then it kills it. Well, so then, well, then WebSockets aren't the problem. But it is, because the exceptions are coming from within WebSockets. Exactly. Uh. It's a third-party library that's throwing an exception that I guess you didn't expect. I forget what the specifics of the bug were, but wasn't it a bug in the actual WebSockets library? I just repasted the gist, and I, it's very vague where the actual problem is. But that's all right. I mean, does C-sharp have exceptions, Casey? Are you just not accustomed to having to catch exceptions and deal with them? You know, there's no need to be cruel, John. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, Jeez. just wrap the whole thing and try catch and at least keep the thing from going down. Well, generally... I would prefer for this situation to die violently and tell me exactly what's going on. And I think actually we got in a pretty big fight with Marco about this. Yes. Well, no, it's like turning that into, yes, turning it into fatal errors. You're not turning warnings into fatal errors. You're not doing anything with fatal errors. And I think it's fine, for example, if you have a multi-process model to let your Apache child die because it had a fatal error, because the whole server doesn't go away then. there's Right, you don't lose all of your data. The parent the parent will just spawn another child and the day will go on. But when it's single process and you're not catching exceptions and one comes along, your single process goes away. And that's... Oh, we agree. We agree. I, but my point is just that if the error was something more specific, like, oh, somebody tried to send... Uh, ten thousand byte thing over over this WebSocket, then I could take action on that and and thus harden the system a little better. Then what what I'm going to do, however, since I didn't get useful feedback, is I'm going to add a, you know, a try catch, if you will, or at least handle this um, error message or uh, error event, and then call it call it a day because clearly I'm not getting anything useful from it. Well, it's like when, I mean, in any web server, if the client sends invalid, you know, invalid method type or, you know, whatever, like you could, you can make an HTTP request that's malformed and your server should handle. Yeah. Garbage client connected to me. He sent me something that looked kind of like an HTTP request, but actually it was invalid because the the method it used doesn't actually exist. And this header or uh, it sent this method, but it didn't have the required headers, but it claimed it was HTTP 1.1. Like you either your library or if you're not your library, then at least your app has to, has to be resilient to people sending you garbage. And you would think that would be the job of the library. Like if you're writing something on, you know, Apache platform or using mod PHP or something like that, you're, you're assuming that Apache is going to handle like the crazy invalid request. And it's never even going to get to the point where it executes your PHP because the Apache is going to return a 500 error and trigger your error page handling or whatever you want to do before it even gets to your thing. But the WebSockets library is not doing that for you. And we don't even know if it's because people are sending malform WebSocket requests. It could just be a bug in the library and people are sending perfectly valid WebSocket requests and this is choking on it. Either way, it's not good for your server. And if you just did everything the old fashioned way with HTTP and Ajax, uh, you wouldn't be having this problem. That's possibly true. And I w- I'd like to address something from the chat. Somebody uh, said, um, I don't understand how Casey could be a professional programmer. And I think it's important to realize that 
A, I'm working in technology, so I'm not typically used to working in so insofar as Node and WebSockets. But B, and more importantly, this is something I threw together for fun in, in not a lot of time. I'm not being paid to do this, and I'm not doing this for my job. I'm doing this just for grins and giggles and just to learn. And a lot of the things that I'm fighting, like people deliberately being malicious, are things that I don't often run into in my day-to-day -day work. And so I would have put in a crapload more time being defensive in my programming instead of being defensive right now and, and making sure all of these things were considered and taken care of and, and things of that nature. But I, I didn't, A, I didn't spend the time on it. B, I still don't think I should, but the chat room is a bunch of pains in my butt. And C, this is not like my normal job. My normal job, I'm paid to consider all of these possibilities and to spend the time to f to get all this right. And this is something I threw together in a sum total of like three or four hours. So it's very different. I, I would I would say, let's not pretend this is not the way that, the person who said that comment strikes me as someone who is not a programmer, because let's not to pretend that this isn't the way that all programming happens. It just may not happen in public, but this is how you write a program, guys. You try it, you find out how it's broken, you fix it. Like this is the process of programming. It's just that he's doing it sort of in public. Uh, whereas normally all this would be happening on your local computer as you write it and try to use it and it crashes and you write something else and you try to use it and it screws up and like that's called programming. Do you think it would work better if you were running antivirus software on your Mac? <laughs> yeah, that antivirus thing, like, I mean, I understand why people do that, but that's so insane to me that like people would insist that you have antivirus software on your Mac. I, I wonder if they make this, if the same requirement applies to iPhones. Do you have antivirus software on that iPhone? I'm sorry, it's not, it's not qualified. You can't, we can't use that. Yep. Well, I mean, again, this is a government entity and I don't know if you, well, John, you should know better than me even that government entities are things that are associated with the government. They tend to have just piles and piles and piles and piles and piles of red tape, much of with, which is not understood by the people that enforce it. Yeah, well, they do change. Like my wife works in a place that has crazy requirements and it used to be that you couldn't bring any device that had a camera anywhere you know, you couldn't bring a camera or anything that had a camera on it. And then when phones started to have cameras, you couldn't bring any of the cameras, any phones with cameras in because that's a camera, right? But at a certain point, all phones have cameras. And then it's untenable to tell people, I'm sorry, you can't bring your phone to work. And so they had to change the rules and say, okay, well, it's obvious that we can't, you know, and it was an in-between period. They'd be like, well, BlackBerry makes a special model that doesn't have phones in them for enterprise. And that's what we're going to force everyone to use. Or, yeah, whatever. Uh, but now it's like, you know, even the government has to eventually recognize, you know, and so they did and they said, okay, well, there's certain areas where you can't bring your phone because or any camera because we assume your phone has a camera, but you can bring your phone to work and send and receive phone calls with it. So eventually, you know, they'll catch up. Like, I bet they don't require you to have antivirus software on your iOS device, but I bet in 2007 they sure did. And we're sad when you told them that makes no sense. Yeah, the uh, place that I worked that did a lot of government contracting for a long time, the official stance was you may not have a camera phone. And this is right when, just like you said, when phones with cameras started becoming prevalent and I believe they uh, changed the policy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a tough thing. It's a lot of stuff that uh, Marco doesn't have to deal with and probably doesn't have the patience for. And sometimes I wonder if I do too. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. I've I've never been in a job that had that kind. Of, well, except for like my internship at Nationwide in, in college, but uh, otherwise I've never been in a job that had because it's like I've always been at these small companies where I could pretty much have whatever I wanted on my computer. Well, that, but that's the thing is for my company, 
it was, I found it extremely egregious when they instituted a, you have to change your password every 90 days policy. And well, I'm not trying to get into a security discussion about why that's important or good or bad. I'm at 60 days, Casey, right now in the, in 2014. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I was really upset when, when that happened, but I mean, my computer, it's wide open. I can do whatever the crap I want with it. It's the problem is, is that because I do consulting, when we work for and with clients, we have to generally speaking, not always, we usually roll with their rules and their rules. When you work with either large government entities or large financial services companies, as my company tends to do have tremendously strict and difficult rules. So it's not that all of the real world is bad, Marco. It's just some parts. Just the parking lots. Just the parking lots. Are we done here? <laughs> yeah. Aye. Yeah, so buy me an M3. Let's go back to the important stuff. Get right on that. <laughs> you know, I'll I'll suffer I'll suffer through black just for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what other color would you pick? I the- you get mu- mustard mustard yellow. It's the official Oh god. Metallic yeah. mustard. It's the official German color of yeah. I, th- I think that should that should be the deal. Is if I if I get to buy you an M3, <laughs> I get to pick the color, and you, and you have to drive it. Oh no, that's fine. Just give me the right transmission for Christ's sakes. Did you see? By the way, in the, the and speaking of the most recent car and driver, more stuff for you, Casey. Was that they have the thirty cars under thirty thousand dollars section? I don't know if I've gotten this one yet. It's got the white white car snark. Thirty cars under thirty. Uh, what the hell's in the cover? Uh, it's got hot hatchback story. Uh, I don't remember what's on the cover. Nothing interesting. But anyway, my car's right in there, and the 30 car's under 30. You should read what they say about it. They love it. Oh, they're wrong. They're not. <laughs> they, I, think they, I think they called it nearly perfect. They're definitely wrong. Not even you agree with that. I, they said nearly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've built my M3, I think. Is it like 75 grand? 75 250, Marco. <laughs> uh, there are too many options on these BMWs. Honda, you get like zero choices for anything. So it's like, well, I guess I'm getting this interior color and this and that. Like now looking at these leather colors, trim colors, BMW individual leather and trim. It's like, I don't know what combinations look good. This is the problem with supercars. They let you pick everything because they're going to hand build it for you anyway. And you're paying them, you know, half a million dollars. But I'd be like, I don't know what looks good together. It's your job to decide what colors and, and trims look good together. Because then you end up with rich people just picking like random combinations. And now you've got a half a million dollar car with nothing that matches in it. All right, now that I'm depressed because I don't want to spend $73,825 or $968 a month on a uh, M3, I'm going to go to bed. Also, you would never actually pay their their listed lease price. You can negotiate way lower than that. Yeah, I know, but still. Uh, I, just, Marco, go ahead and buy one for me. I'll drive it in black. I don't care. I might even, I might even <laughs> accept it if it had the stupid DCT. That sounds like you're changing your mind a little bit on the DCT. That see, that sounds a lot like. Uh, no, I'd be willing to suffer through, is what I'm saying. I would not choose it myself. No, but I'm saying like, like that. That sounds a lot like you know this fish isn't really that bad. I kind of like this one song. <laughs> okay. Like it sounds like you're changing. Finally, like I'm winning you over there. Uh, I will, I'm proud to tell you that I continue to not know, have never known the title of any fish song would not recognize any fish songs <laughs> if i heard them and despite you two continuing to discuss fish songs by title now i also do not remember any of the fish songs what are you talking about i know one by title i i wouldn't recognize fish if i heard them on the radio i do not know a single title of a single song dave matthews unfortunately i know there are a few of their top 40 hits you you mispronounced fortunately is my curse <laughs> what mispronouncing fortunately no, and, and knowing that Dave Matthews exists and, and knowing some of their songs. 